I'm a believer that uh, that the Genome Project shouldn't have been a big project. I mean, international is great. It's, it's good to share. Uh, but I think it, it should have been a project that a very small number of people can bring down the price radically. And then, then you deploy it worldwide in kind of almost a consumer-driven way. I mean, it can be through physicians and so forth. So I think the next... The big things, the things that are worldwide, are uh, things that involve, you know, shared, often capitalistic driven uh, shared models. So like the Internet, like in this case, personal genomics. So we, we've we started various efforts to, to bring the price down to zero dollars like Nebula Genomics and uh, make it private and safe. So, so but still shareable. So I think that's a that's a that's a big everybody should get their genomes to at least have the 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 ability to get their genome sequence is a personal choice as to exactly what you do with it or if you do it. But I think it'd be valuable if everybody got it and, and ideally if everybody shared it. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Georgia Impact Podcast, bringing you a first-hand look at the big opportunities and issues facing today's software entrepreneurs. On the show, they interview CEOs and founders of software companies and other thought leaders in the space. So you can hear firsthand how they're working to solve business problems with cutting-edge tech just like we do here on The Disruptors. The show helps CEOs, founders, and product leaders, really anyone who's interested in the latest developments in software startup scene, understand a wide range of topics. Things like machine learning and AI, conversational interfaces, privacy, ethics, and trust, big problems in the AI space, blockchain, quantum computing, and other emerging technologies. You can find and subscribe to the Georgia Impact Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse if you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. It's not very often you get the chance to speak with a living legend. Well, today we have that and we're bringing it to you guys. George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard and MIT, director of the Personal Genome Project, co-author of over 509 papers, 143 patents, the first guy to figure out and publish the human genome, and then improve the cost a millionfold. It's no exaggeration to say his innovations have contributed to nearly all next-generation DNA sequencing methods and companies. Plus, his lab's work on chip DNA synthesis, gene editing, stem cell engineering, and much more have resulted in vast numbers of companies. We'll get into that a little bit more on the podcast, at least 14 of which he's helped to co-found. George is the director of the IARPA Brain Project, the NIH Center for Excellence in Genomic Science, and is the author of Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. Now he spends his free time trying to revive woolly mammoths, literally, to combat climate change and save the world, while being a foremost pioneer in the field of synthetic biology and genetic engineering. You guys are going to love this one, because today we'll discuss the beginnings of the Human Genome Project, and why in a lot of ways George thinks it was a waste of money, the future of genome sequencing, writing, and where it's headed. Why George isn't hugely worried about genetic engineering leading to greater inequality? We'll disagree here. What scares George the most in the world of synthetic biology? A little more on how George's team is literally trying to revive woolly mammoths, what the implications are, and why it's probably an awesome idea. The real risk of bioterrorism. How to get the benefits of your DNA without exposing your results. And the importance of gene editing on humanity's future, space, and much, much more. And now, before I give you the one, the only, George Church, I want to ask you for your support. We've run some ads on this podcast. We also have some additional podcasts that you guys don't always get access to. We have bonus episodes that we have to hold back and only provide for our patrons because there's a ton of time, effort, and energy that goes into getting incredible guests like George on the podcast. If you guys love what we're doing and you want to support us, you want to unlock bonus episodes and help us with making this a more sustainable production, consider supporting us, be that economically or just by referring us to a friend. 
Reviews go a long way. Sharing, word of mouth, anything you can do. If you want to help us in terms of buying us a cup of coffee a month or something like that so we can make this into uh, at least something that fuels my caffeine-powered addiction, then that would be incredible. Go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon. We really need to get these patron numbers up for us to be able to make this sustainable long-term. We've taken on a couple of choice advertisers, and that's not something that we look down on just because of the quality that we've gotten. But even then, having to be at the whims of advertisers is always challenging to make something sustainable. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon for more details. And it's 100% tax deductible if you're in the US. So you know what? We've probably passed that tax deadline at this point. But if you want to write off your taxes for next year, feel free to donate to the Disruptors. It's probably a better cause than Uncle Sam. And now without further ado, I give you George Church. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We'll talk all about your introduction and incredible background in the in the intro to this. So I wanted to jump into what I think is probably the most important question for someone in your position, and that's how in God's name do you prioritize what to work on with so many possibilities? Well, the possibilities are definitely greater than when I was a student, not, not just for me, but for, for everybody. Uh, in that when I was a student, you had to decide whether you were going to do something that was pure science, something that was technology, something that was disruptive technology, or something that was socially impactful, like clinically or, or otherwise. And now you can do all at once. And so I, I'm looking for cases where we can really max out all at once. Uh, now, that, that sounds overly ambitious, but it's much easier than it used to be. And it also helps that, that the particular thing that we picked, the thing that I picked over the years, was to be interdisciplinary and exponential technologies. I didn't know that's what I was doing when I started, but that's in a certain sense what, what we've been doing. And so those, that combination of those two things makes it relatively easy to choose what to do next. And yeah. finally, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's the whole adage of buy low, sell high. That's, that's not actually a, a recipe or an algorithm. Uh, it usually means that somebody's got a lot of experience. And I think we have a lot of experience of finding undervalued technologies, things that people think are either impossible or forever expensive or worthless. And we just go and scoop them up and make them work. Basically, you have the world's greatest job. You get to make magic and actually make it happen. That's yeah. what all the, that's where the incredible beard has come from, I imagine. Definitely. Knowledge and insight. So how did you, why did you choose synthetic biology? Why did you get into chemistry and some of the fields that you're in now? What was the initial origin of that? Well, quite frankly, I, uh, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in every aspect of science and I never really wanted to specialize within that uh, specialty. And so I just sought out uh, fields where, where you needed to be interdisciplinary. And the first one I found was x-ray crystallography of biological macromolecules, and that required, you know, the physics of diffraction, the math of uh, Fourier transforms, the, the chemistry of, 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 of bonds, and, and, then, and then the biology of macromolecules. And, and uh, ever since then, I've been looking at ways that you can apply those uh, strategies of automation and multiplexing to basically every other field, and synthetic biology was uh, fairly a good choice. Anything that's basic and enabling allows you to delay, defer specialization. Is it fair to say synthetic biology will be to this century what compute and digital was to the last? I think it's actually bigger than what compute and digital is was because since it's so the software, hardware, manufacturing and, and design are all so much more intimately connected. I mean, it's clearly in the electronics industry, you have computer-aided design and manufacturing, but that uh, that's just a, that you, you typically use it to build, you know, electronic circuits, say. Well, with biology, you can, you can probably build everything, including electronic circuits or, or the moral equivalent of them. Fair point. How do you bring that, how do you bring that expertise together? Because you do need both sides of the equation to be able to be successful. Like you said, you, you have an interesting mind that explores a lot of fields. And yet most people in traditional education, especially, you kind of pick your one thing and you zoom in on that and almost never touch anything else. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's an acquired taste. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's bitter to some people uh, to try to wrap your head around too many things. I guess uh, it's like anything. If, if, you, if you work at it long enough, you, you get better at it. Or, or if, you, if you start at it earlier, it helps too. 
you know, we take deep, I take, and my team takes deep dives on, on some subjects and takes, if you take enough kind of poke enough deep dives, it's not, it's not just shallow coverage of, of a large number of fields. You have kind of an interesting perspective and it helps. And, and, and very often one field will help you solve a, a problem in another. So it's got its disadvantages uh, and advantages. What's the most pressing problem or thing you're working on today? If you had to pick one thing and choose that as the favorite child, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, uh, that's not my forte is, is choosing favorite. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would say, well, there are two ways of, if you, if you want to prioritize at that level, uh, one would be, which is the most basic technology? And I would say that's reading and writing DNA. That, that under, underpins our ability to read and write all kinds of things. You could say reading and writing are two different things. I'm cheating, but but actually, I think they're intimately connected. It's hard to write a book or DNA without being able to read it, and vice versa. Uh, it's hard to read something until you've written it. So I think those are. So I'm going to call that one thing. And then if I had to pick one thing that's most enabling to me personally, would or to scientists, would be uh, aging reversal. You know, it's like if a genie gives you one wish, that wish should be for a thousand wishes. And so if you, you want, I'm just now getting to the point where I think I'm an actual productive member of society after 65 years of programming myself, uh, I, I'm finally uh, fairly functional. And it would be a pity to, to like uh, recycle me at this point. I'm going to call bullshit on you just getting to be a productive member of society. I think you've accomplished a ton, George. Speaking uh, well, <laughs> hum- humbleness is one of those key attributes, especially for leaders, though. So Speaking, speaking of what you've done in the past, you, you talked about reading and writing. You were kind of there at the ground floor. What was that like when it seemed impossible and impossibly expensive? Well, it didn't seem completely impossible in the sense that when I started, there was synthetic organic chemistry. It wasn't just at the dawn of synthetic chemistry of nucleic acids, thanks to Gobinkrana. And there was certainly reading of nucleic acids. Usually, they were restricted to being sort of, you know, tens to maybe 100 base pairs, mostly transfer RNAs. And that happened to be what I worked on was transfer RNAs, which was the kind of the, the ground zero for both uh, reading and writing of nucleic acids. Uh, and I was doing neither. I was doing the three-dimensional structure of it, which is an, another aspect of reading, I guess. And then the Human Genome Project. How'd yeah. you get so, so it didn't seem impossible, but it did seem like it was an awfully long way to go from being able to read 76 base pairs and, and maybe write 76 to being able to read and write a human genome, which was 6 billion base pairs, if you count both the mothers and the fathers, and, and then doing 7 billion of us, each with 6 billion base pairs, just seemed uh, daunting. But it seemed to me that it was just a matter of bringing down the, the cost. And that's what I've been doing basically ever since then. That was, that was roughly when I was uh, 19 that I started getting the bug of, of sequence, se- sequencing and, and to a lesser extent, later se- synthesis. And the Human Genome Project, it was something like a billion dollars in 15 years? It was, no, it was a, a dollar a base for a haploid genome, three billion base pairs, three billion dollars. But I never accepted that. As the correct goal, I felt the correct goal was to do both of your genomes of a cell. To be clinically relevant, you have to analyze both your mother's and your father's contributions to your genome, which is twice as much, and you have to keep them unentangled, and it has to be cheaper than $3 billion. I felt I just felt that $3 billion for $3 billion was completely the wrong two goals. It should be, uh, you know, more like $1,000 for $6 billion, or maybe even less money than that. And we eventually got there, but I think the genome project itself was a bit of a of a waste uh, because it was it was too much money and not enough uh, new results. What do you think in terms of the next big? Because the the genome project was that was uh, multi multi country that was international effort, right? Yeah. What do you think the next big human level challenge of something like this is? Is it tackling climate change? Is it tackling something else in terms of health and longevity? What are the ones you would like to see people unite around and why? Well, I, I, I'm a believer that, uh, that the Genome Project shouldn't have been a big project. I mean, international is great. It's, it's good to share. Uh, but I think it, it should have been a project that a very small number of people can bring down the price radically. And then, then you deploy it worldwide in kind of almost a consumer-driven way. 
I mean, it can be through physicians and so forth. So I think the next, the big things, the things that are worldwide are uh, things that involve, you know, shared, often capitalistic driven uh, shared models. So like the internet, like in this case, personal genomics. So we, we've, we started various efforts to, to bring the price down to zero dollars like Nebula Genomics and uh, make it private and safe, so, so, but still shareable. So I think that's a, that's, a, that's a big, everybody should get their genomes, to at least have the, the, the ability to get their genome sequences, a personal choice as to exactly what you do with it or if you do it. But I think it would be valuable if everybody got it and, and ideally if everybody shared it. What do you think about the safety of that in terms of insurance companies screwing you ahead of time? Well, so, so uh, Nebula, we've established a way that you can ask questions of your genome without ever having an, an unencrypted version of it. So even you don't have your genome. And so you can get the value of a genome, you know, for example, preventing if you have like a rare genetic disease, that's like one, you know, a few bits of information that you go and check out. And that can be done by homomorphic encryption queries. Um, without having an encrypted form. So the insurance company, you can hand them the encrypted form, but it won't do them any good. You can prove to them that you haven't uh, gamed the insurance business, and it's against the law in the United States anyway for the health insurers and employers to discriminate. But but even if that law were reversed tomorrow, if you have homomorphic encryption, you can get all the benefits without uh, the, the downside. But I think this is one of the reasons that, that we have this paradox where you have nearly $0 genome and almost nobody getting it is because uh, up until this year, there wasn't a way to do uh, secure and safe, private, uh, medically relevant queries. And like with Facebook and Equifax, if you're not paying for the product, you are a piece of the product. Correct. Which is... Well, so, yes, if you don't know the business model, then you're in trouble. But if in the case... There, is, there are $0 products where you're not the product. So, for example, Wikipedia, I would say, is a $0 product. To some extent, map and, and searches, uh, the worst happens is you see a few ads. But Facebook's a different matter altogether. Um, but I think there are $0 products. And in the case of genomics, the, $0, the reason that you can get $0 without being a product is um, Mendelian diseases cost trillions of dollars, about $10 trillion of, of, uh, could be saved. If we could solve those and, and um, therefore people should be incentivized or certainly not disincentivized by having a, 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 pay a lot of money. Let's play devil's advocate to do it and do it effectively. You have to have a single payer healthcare system. Otherwise, if you have the system the U.S. has now, then yeah. they're not sure the insurance company's not sure if I'm going to churn next year. So they could they could give a shit if I die next year, as long as I don't die this year. That's correct. But I. I uh, Slightly disagree in that I think that there's such a big return on investment. So, so there's there's about a million dollars, million to, to five million, depending on who does the estimate per uh, Mendelian uh, severe Mendelian disease. There's about five percent of the population. If you run the numbers, an insurance company could you you know the churn rate. I mean, that these are these are all facts that their actuarial uh, staff can sort out, but. The churn, even if you assume worst case churn, you know, you know, historical uh, data, you still have a 10 to 1 return on investment. So you can just throw the rest of it out the window. I mean, it's just the price of doing business. But the cost of the genome is so low now and the return is so big. I mean, the cost is now getting down around $300 and the return is millions of dollars for the 5% of the population. So I, I think uh, there is a business model. It's just going to take a while for confidence to build in that business model. Interesting. Speaking of confidence, we've seen, we've seen some very confident efforts out of China in terms of what we can do with the technology. Where do you think, obviously, we will head that direction? Do you think we'll see humanity splintering into multiple species? Uh, well, first of all, I don't buy the argument of inevitability, but, uh, but, but nevertheless, it's a good question of whether we will speciate. Uh, I think to some extent, we have already speciated, not, not due to genetic technology, but due to technology. So there are many... Uh, Aboriginal and indigenous and, and untechnological societies, hundreds of them worldwide, and they do not want to breed with us. So they will throw uh, spears at our helicopters when we try to save them after a quote save them after a tsunami. So that's one form of speciation. It's both it's cultural and uh, geographic. Uh, 
in terms of genetics, I think the, the, the direction may be the opposite, which is that we diversify intentionally, but diversify in a way that's, that's uh, interoperable. Uh, so in other words, if you, uh, you know, you look at, you look in our technological cities, there's a, there's a wide diversity of products and a growing number of them are interoperable, not always. And for example, I think we're despeciating rather than speciating in the sense that, you know, we have animals now where we've taken a jellyfish gene, put it into a mouse or into a, a plant. Uh, we've taken CRISPR from a bacteria and put it into almost every other organism. Uh, we're basically becoming one species by the definition of, of not of exchanging DNA. We basically can exchange DNA between any two species. So I think that particular species definition is evaporating. But if you talk about, I, I think also in terms of socioeconomics, we're, we have the wherewithal and we're exploiting occasionally of making some technologies available to everybody. So this is, you know, your theme is disruption. I mean, I think that, that uh, there are some technologies who are aiming towards equitable distribution like clean water and, and uh, you know, electronics, you know, like access to, uh, to uh, cell phones is getting pretty good. But there's some technologies that are better than pretty good. They're, they're literally everybody gets it for free. And that's like, for example, smallpox. Smallpox, uh, when it was a vaccine, was not quite equitable because you had to have access to the pennies per vaccine dose. But now it's extinct. And so there's not even pennies. And I think we, we should, there are many technologies where we can radically reduce the, the cost in that manner to zero dollars uh, to the consumer. Do you think in terms of genetic enhancements that that would come fast enough? One of the fears I have is that if we're able to alter not only in vitro babies, but if we're able to make, I'm going to get the term wrong, but essentially if I can alter myself or you can alter yourself while you're currently alive, that yeah. we could have changes fast enough. If suddenly we take George Church and you're 50 IQ points higher, you're in the best shape of your life and you're going to live an extra 20 or 50 years, you're going to have a very different interest in women. You're going to want them to be smart and sexy and living longer, et cetera. It could, do you see that as a potential spiral? Yeah, I think you've correctly, I mean, m more uh, astutely than, than the average uh, person commenting on this topic uh, have, have seen that the, the threat is not germline enhancement. It is adult enhancement. Uh, it seems like all the obsession is about germline, but it takes like 80 years to debug uh, uh, an anti-Alzheimer's germline therapy, and that that kind of design-build-test cycle is just uneconomic. So you don't need to regulate it; it's going to it's going to be very hard. But but yes, in adults, you have a very quick design cycle in principle, where you could see an improvement in in cognition or immunity or or, or just uh, robustness of of your health as you get an aging reversal. Yeah, I mean, I think well. We have to uh, uh, be cautious that, that we will create uh, have and have, uh, uh, perpetuate and exaggerate have and have not. But one one strategy of why biology, I think, has the potential of being even better than cell phones, which are getting to the point where you have six billion cell phones, not quite equitably distributed. I think we can do even better with biology because in principle, biology is free. I mean, you look at the forests of the world. I mean, you just look at the world from the sky and there's all this biological stuff that's atomically precise, made at scale, and it basically just needs carbon dioxide and, and sunlight. Now, how you turn the reason that, that, that therapies are expensive is because the, the fixed costs of safety uh, test, engineering and testing. And, the, and I'm a big fan of the uh, Food and Drug Administration, but in order to get that level of safety with the historical uncertainties required on the order of a billion dollars per drug. Now, it's really more like $100 million of drug, maybe even less, but you have to amortize all the failures as well. So the more failures, and the failure rate was somewhere between 80% uh, and more recently maybe 70 or 60%. But the point is uh, you have to include those. So if we can reduce the failure rate, that'll help, but also if we increase the market. So if the, if the fixed cost is a billion dollars and the market is 7 billion people, then you're talking about something that's getting potentially equitable. And an, an example of something where the market could be big is aging reversal. Most other, you know, your typical uh, gene therapy would be 
a tiny market of hundreds of people. And that's the problem with orphan drugs. They're extraordinarily expensive. Gene therapies are as well for rare diseases. But if you get something where everybody can benefit, then you can uh, spread that cost out. But we have this has to be a conscious effort. Not necessarily every government has to regulate it, but somebody, some disruptor, has to think out of the box to how to make the, the, uh, the cost dirt cheap. And what are your thoughts on IP or the need to open source? Is this something where that is very dangerous if we don't or we do? Some people argue both ways. that It's dangerous if we do and dangerous if we don't. Uh, it's dangerous if we do in the sense that it puts incredible power, power of life and death for, you know, of millions of people in the hands of one person. Uh, it's dangerous if we don't in the sense that since there are, we would like to believe there are uh, many, many more good uh, intentioned people than bad, uh, then you want to have the good intentioned people uh, to have the, the uh, wherewithal, the research and development tools to, to do what's necessary to prevent, a, at a minimum, emerging disease and emerging infectious diseases, emerging diseases of affluence, because that's the real enemy. Anyway, you can argue both ways. I think the net is on the side of open source. There are probably, a, you know, yeah. That would be my inclination. What do you think about the the good-willed but woefully ignorant? You, you know what you don't know. You don't always know what you don't know. Right. Someone releasing something into the wild with vastly unintended consequences. Right. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, as engineers, we tend to be ignorant. And, and it is remarkable how much good can be done with vast ignorance. Uh, that's not an excuse or a recommendation. It is, uh, for example, smallpox, which I already mentioned. We were so ignorant that we didn't even have names for uh, virology and immunology when we started applying the smallpox principle. And even by the time of, of extinction, uh, we were still woefully ignorant. Now, the question is, and I think as we go forward, many of these things were getting much better at at uh, sort of accurate science fiction of uh, Hollywood depiction of all these negative scenarios of engagement of people in both the fictionalized and the documentary versions, that it really will be harder and harder to do something through ignorance. Uh, it will probably become less and less motivating to do it uh, willfully because you know you're going to be hurting your family, yourself, in some cases, and there are alternatives. I mean, if, if, if your goal is to obtain, you know, wealth or health or, you know, just, you know, good happiness for your family, there, there are probably more practical ways to do that than causing the pandemic. There definitely are, but Zuckerberg's doing his best to make the world a better place by uniting everyone on Facebook. And we've, we're seeing some unintended consequences of that. Yeah, what a, fair enough. If you had to, if you had to guess the cause of a post-apocalyptic tomorrow, what would it be and why? Well, my, 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 you won't like my first top choice, which is the asteroid. But nevertheless, I think there are, there are biotechnological things we can do to, to deal with the asteroid, for example, dealing with the, the biological challenges, the space travel, getting us, you know, establishing colonies throughout our solar system and beyond. The second one, if I had to pick something that was uh, more biological, I suppose a pandemic since, and the reason I say that is because we're more well stirred than ever before. That is to say, we travel more, we, uh, we don't hesitate to go out of the, the home and send our kids to daycare without uh, determining what it is that they're suffering from. As long as they don't have 104 temperature, the fact they're projectile vomiting is fine. So, uh, so I think that we're quite capable of pandemics, not through biotechnology, but just through the technology of travel. It used to be that most people would be born and die within a, a few meters, you know, of their original home. And that's, you know, they'd live in little villages that would never exchange material with uh, much material other than trade routes. So, and even those were limited, but I think that's completely changed. So that would be my, that would be my top biological risk. So let's say Elon hops in his little driverless car and drives over to your lab and says, George, I need your help. We got to get people on Mars. What do, you, what do you tell him in terms of time horizon, both near and far in terms of conservative and aggressive, when you think that we would be at the point where we could alter humanity enough to be able to withstand those types of conditions? 
not without spacesuits, obviously, but just in general, adapting ourselves. Well, I think that probably we could do it already. It would just be quite uncomfortable and, and shorter lives and so forth. We have, we, we have some people that have stayed a year or so out in space, weightless. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of fluid problems and, and bone problems uh, that, that are not fixed, even on returning to, to uh, Earth gravity. Even Mars is, not, is pretty low gravity, it's 38%, and uh, our body just was not made for 38%. Uh, you can generate artificial gravity with centrifuges, but that's, that's impractical so far. So I would say that there's, uh, it would be good to solve that problem both for osteoporosis on Earth and for weightless and 38% gravity. Uh, radiation resistance is something that would probably be valuable, again, both on Earth and in space. You know, a lot of our cancers and uh, other inherited disorders are due to radiation. And also the, the kind of fixes for that might uh, be fixes that are valuable for, for other kinds of uh, DNA damage uh, and, and aging. So I think those would be my top two, and they and they have a kind of a win-win feeling to them, and they are something that's practical in, in both places. But my top one of the three would be uh, colonies. We need to practice colonies on Earth. We the the premise that we're just going to establish colonies on Mars, having never practiced, uh, is 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 amazing. It'd be like like I'm going to go, uh, you know, do Beethoven's Ninth at, at uh, Carnegie Hall without uh, ever having touched the piano. I mean, there's, there's just ridiculous. So if we, if we can't get people to agree to live in a completely sealed container on Earth, where if something goes wrong, you just open the door and you go to the nearest hospital, then they really shouldn't be volunteering to, go, <laughs> to be going uh, you know, 20 light minutes away and doing the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy the optimism people speak about this with without really considering what the consequences would be. But I think colonies, like the other two things, would, would be a win-win too, because if you establish colonies on Earth, um, not only are you qualifying yourself the way that astronauts qualify to go into space over a long training period, but you're also, for, for while you're in there, you're, you're not going to have any infectious diseases, which is a pretty awesome concept. Uh, you'll have zero commute time, you know, Etc. There will be advantages. It's not just a net disadvantage. So I think there could be a a eco uh, economy that could spring up uh, that kind of like you know trailer park uh, except more serious. Mm-hmm. Seasteading as well. I could see that happening that way. Yeah. We have we have a couple people we're trying to get on the program who have been setting up some a couple of people on the the Hawaii colony. I think NASA was working on. Just uh, experimentally, it's it's fascinating to look at yeah, what happens. It has to be completely sealed with total recycling because this whole the thing we're doing on the International Space Station, where we're you know releasing things into space or sending them back to Earth and shipping, you know that 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 is not really sustainable, probably. Uh, so, and it's not it shouldn't be that hard. We have contained uh, spaces that uh, for non-human ecosystems that last for many decades. We should be able to do it for humans as well. Mm-hmm. If I had to make you give up everything you've worked on today to this point and to choose a completely new field, one that fascinated you, but you'd never really dove into, what would it be and why? Well, that's hard uh, just because I've tried a lot of things. I've kissed a lot of frogs, not too many frogs left. So, yeah, I mean, I can pick things that I haven't. Let's say things you haven't gone deep into. Yeah, that I, well, I, there are many things I haven't been successful at. Uh, that's one. Uh, so, you know, I think one that I that I've tried toyed with is carbon sequestration. And uh, you know, I th- I would I think that we're in a position where there's a lot of the talk about the climate change is not very productive. It's talking about pointing fingers like who did it, who who has to sacrifice the most to get it fixed. And we're talking about it's kind of nickel and dime stuff. We're talking about nine gigatons. For total human consumption worldwide, well, there are things that where carbon sequestration is occurring naturally that involve not nine gigatons, but fourteen hundred gigatons is the amount of carbon in the in the tundra uh, or the Arctic, uh, nineteen million square kilometers. Uh, that's a lot, and you could sequester a whole lot more. You talk about seasteading, you know, there's a lot of uh, carbon fixed in the in the ocean every year. About we can almost return to pre-industrial levels just by harnessing the amount that's fixed every year by the, the uh, 
cyanobacteria in the ocean. For example, rather than, I mean, if some of the previous proposals have been to take, uh, feed them iron and, and nitrogen and phosphorus, which are their basic fertilizers, and then they'll fix the carbon and fall to the bottom of the ocean. A, that's inaccessible. B, they're taking a lot of phosphorus with them, which is a precious fertilizer component. You know, the nitrogen and iron, I mean, I'll, that's not so precious, but the phosphorus is a big deal. So instead of sinking those down, turn, focus on fixing carbon carbohydrates, essentially, and leaving them on the surface. So building islands that are semi non-biodegradable. So the less emphasis on biodegrading and more emphasis on making permanent structures. So an example of a fairly recalcitrant uh, carbohydrate is cellulose. Uh, it's actually fairly hard to destroy wood in seawater. And so you could make, you know, really gigantic, if you wanted to fix uh, all the carbon that's post-industrial, um, that would make some pretty big islands about the size, you know, maybe half the size of Australia. So anyway, these are things that I clearly haven't done, but I would love to do. And and I'm doing some things on, on the Arctic as part of the Mammoth Project and some of the things on carbon sequestration in the ocean from sanobacterial work that I started a long time ago. But I think it still met your requirement of not having done this. So, yeah. Definitely. You teed me up for that one perfectly. So Putin goes to you in the secret meeting and tells you about this mammoth idea he's got. What, yeah. what, is, the, what is the deal here? Tell me about... The, the mammoth project and how you guys are trying to resurrect and fight climate change. Yeah. So, so Vladimir and I do have connections to the same mammoth museum in, in uh, Yakutsk, which is one of the key cities in, in, in Siberia. The, the, uh, the idea there is, uh, and there is, uh, it was a counterintuitive idea years ago when Sergei Zimov and later his son Nikita proposed just how much carbon there is in the, and it was, in the Arctic, it was greatly underestimated because in most uh, ecosystems, you know, most of the carbon is in the top meter, but in the, in the permafrost, it goes down 500 meters. Um, and it took a while for everybody to realize what the consequence of that was. And most of it's stabilized by ice. And so if you melt it, then you get carbon dioxide and worse yet, a lot of methane that comes from the grass roots turning into, uh, into bacteria. And so then, and the main reason for this, the point, the, the finger pointing for this 1,400 gigatons is not the SUVs or the smokestacks. It's 1,500 years ago, our ancestors killed off all the herbivores, and it switched from grass, which is a good photosynthetic carbon sequestration vehicle and a good reflector of light and a good, and, a lot, and the herbivores tramp down the snow, it switched to these really dark kind of antennae for warming uh, that they they uh, heat up uh, due to their dark nature, uh, albedo, and they uh, trap snow, which insulates the, the summer temperatures away from the minus 40 winter wind. And the main herbivore that's missing that, that, that would shift the, the, the tree to grass ratio back to the, to the uh, ratio that would maintain the, the, the temperature were large, uh, the largest herbivores, which were um, elephants or mammoths. And many of the mammoths and elephants were interbreedable, uh, and, and the various hybrids were formed, just like, like I'm, a, I'm a Neanderthal uh, hybrid. Uh, there are lots of mammoth genes floating around. Anyway, so if you just made modern elephants more mammoth-like, uh, then they could uh, help with this carbon sequestration problem, which I think is better than most of the other suggestions, which are drop in the bucket and are just slowing down the carbon problem rather than reversing it. We have to take a quick time out to tell you about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company that we've used and loved in the past to get our podcast cover art done. How Brand Crowd works, you can get logos designed automatically for any projects that you need. It's incredibly fast, incredibly easy. And when you need to get a project going, you know an incredible logo is the first thing that you're going to need. If you go to disruptors.fm slash brandcrowd, that's B-R-A-N-D, crowd, C-R-O-W-D, disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. And you can go and see the designs they have. If there's anything you like that really sparkles your fancy and you think would be great for your business, go for it. Buy it. And it's quick, easy, fast. Your business is up and running. Disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. And now back to the program. Does it scare you how easy it is to explain and rationalize that solution? Do you think that possibly it could be leading yourself or others into into stray by seeing the solution and making it 
Is it one of those things where we see it for what we want it to be? Possibly. Oh, definitely. Possibly. Uh, it's uh, the thing is the unintended consequences I think are, are less than if I were proposing, you know, to release 1918 flu virus from the permafrost, that would be, and which, you know, some of my colleagues did sequence and make public that, that virus, you know, that's a different matter. That's, that's a, a invisible infectious agent that, that had a record of killing uh, young people. Um, this is this is something that is a large herbivore, and we know how to re- regulate the levels of herbivores. So, for example, in the Galapagos, they have more goats than they want, so they ban the goats, uh, and that's feasible. In some islands, they they get rid of the rodents that are killing off uh, their key special species like birds and lizards. Uh, so, I think. That's easily reversible. As we move forward, we can we can decide whether it's uh, working or not. And and we and we've already done a big experiment along these lines on bison. So bison were essentially extinct in the wild, and now there's half a million of them worldwide. And they didn't require a big government handout for that to occur. They're almost what we want from elephants. They just can't. They're just not very good at knocking over trees, uh, or they they choose not to. Well, the, elephant, the elephants love knocking over trees. I think, in part, this is their solution to the giraffe problem. Rather than having a long elephant neck, they get the stuff at the top. They just bring the, the tree down to their level. They're, um, they're smart buggers. I, I hear the intelligence is, it's not human level, but it's very high up there. Well, I think it's probably better than some humans. <laughs> I would definitely give you that. They have, uh, they have amazing emotional concern, uh, which some humans don't, and they... You know, they'll, they'll remember where their baby died and they'll come and visit it every year. So if that unfortunate thing happens and we're not limited to the diversity that it includes all the ancient elephants plus the modern ones and all throughout the entire world, because they were they were global species. We can introduce new things that were not in the ancient or the modern elephants, such as resistant to herpes virus, which is a catastrophic event that's happening now. Just during my lifetime, the herpes virus epidemic has changed from a 10% of infants, infant elephants, to about getting close to 80%. So they may be extinct in our lifetime if we don't do something about the herpes virus, which is another project that we're working on, both for the elephant and, and for any, any hybrids. So I sense a theme in some of your work, and that's that you like to have big inspiration Yet, oftentimes, a lot of the solutions just come from nature or nature-inspired, not necessarily dreaming up the next new yada yada to fix everything, but looking to existing solutions. Yeah, I'm, I'm very big on lowering costs and using nature to do, just helping nature do what it does anyway. Uh, that, that has the advantage that you don't have to get so in, entrenched in politics. And uh, yeah, so I mean, we've brought down the price of of reading and writing DNA by 10 million fold. And that's largely because we've been able to go out there and harness very sophisticated nanomachines that are just all around us. Uh, you just can't see them, but we, we now know how, in a certain sense, our ability to read and write DNA allows us to read and write, look through the biosphere with new goggles, vision, uh, and we can, and then that allows us to get new machines to help us do reading and writing better. And it's kind of a virtuous, positive feedback cycle. And so this, this is things like polymerase helps us to read, nanopores help us to read, uh, CRISPR and, and tau proteins help us to write or edit. And yeah, it's, there's a lot to be said for, for nature and, and natu- nature-inspired technologies. Do you think we'll get to a point within the next 50 or 100 years where it becomes not the oddity, but the absolute majority and the standard to do intensive or let's just say at least decent scale genetic testing and selection of potential embryos when you're when you're having a kid so for instance i see this guy's going to have a disease i don't want him to have to deal with it i see she's gonna not have quite the quite the brain let's let's up that a little bit or let's um let's not continue with this do you think that's something that's going to be a firm majority yeah i mean it's already a firm minority and these things have a way of spreading as long as they're safe, effective, once word gets out. Their word of mouth is going to work uh, at least as well as government regulation and advertisement. You know, a good idea these days because the social networks will spread on its own. 
Uh, but so will a bad idea. So, so yes, that's true. So in this particular case, which is this and, and, and will it spread? So we have, um, and we're not limited to in vitro fertilization as a, uh, you know, reading a genome, there's, there are many things that you can do. They, uh, in vitro fertilization is just one of them. It's not the, it's not the cheapest one. And it's also medically somewhat, uh, invasive for the, for the mother in particular, uh, the hormone treatments to get the eggs and so forth. An alternative is, uh, which is much, much less medical and much less expensive is, um, matchmaking. This has been practiced especially in the Ashkenazi community, and they've more or less eliminated their major genetic diseases, multiple diseases, simply by making sure that you don't fall in love with or marry someone who's incompatible with you. Now, it doesn't mean that you're marked with some scarlet letter. It just because it's a very specific pairing thing. About 5% of uh, would-be mates are incompatible but you still have 95%. So your, your dance card list is, is quite large and excluding 5% is not a big deal. You can even include, uh, include a few where you're not sure, but you know, let's bump it up to 6%. You know, they would be considered false positives if we were in a clinical setting, but this is just matchmaking. And you know, you still have, if you still have 94% of the opposite sex of your age group, uh, that's still a, a vast number of people. Finland does this for Tinder for a sniff test because there's such a small population in the relative area that you have a lot of first and second and third cousins. You have some problems. Exactly. And, and I, I don't think this would be that hard to implement. I mean, to extrapolate from the success in inbred populations, including Ashkenazi and Finland and, and some Arab nations. To the whole population because we're we, we can't say we're not at risk just because there's nobody in our family because many serious mendelian diseases you're the first one that you know of or you're in your family to have a child that's diseased and that's because you just happen to run into another carrier so it's a five percent risk I don't, I don't feel lucky with that kind of uh consequence and so i think that's a reason that everybody could get sequenced and then use it um for matchmaking, uh, as well as in vitro fertilization and other methods. <clears throat> I, don't th- I, you know, I don't think it's going to be super practical to use in vitro fertilization or matchmaking to tinker with aging or uh, intelligence. I think those will require a more powerful medicine, like we talked about earlier, with gene therapy uh, or therapies. Um, but I believe those can be made uh, inexpensive, um, and, and they go through thorough testing. Um, inexpensive because so many people will use it and because um, um, they can be made uh, inexpensively. And because you can do some of these tests at home. I hear you're guinea pig number one. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, guinea pig number one in the personal genome project and a few other projects. Uh, it's because, you know, it's considered ethical uh, for students to experiment on their advisor and not the reverse. Uh, because I, in principle, I make decisions about their uh, career advancement. Uh, so that's one reason I'm getting big. But I think it's just a good idea to eat your own dog food. Uh, there are some there are some risks. Like you know, the first first punch biopsy, we we debugged on me, and I'm glad we did skin skin biopsy. Um, yeah, I was so that- one of the first people to be sequenced, and I put my sequence and my medical records in the public domain, as is true for uh, everybody in the in the personal genome project worldwide. Any negative consequences thus far? I don't know of any uh, in, in myself or in the cohort. Uh, the you know there are a few positive consequences either from sharing the genome or for sharing the, the medical data. In my particular case, someone gave me some uh, great uh, hematologists came out of nowhere and gave me some great uh, advice on um, uh, statins and cholesterol that it probably added many. Uh, quality years to my life. Um, but I'm sure there will be negative consequences at some point. I mean, we're lucky in the United States to have the um, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008. And I think in many of the other countries, there's something equivalent that protects people. In, in part, it's just, it's just inconvenient to go into a, a kind of a specialized small database like ours and use it as a form of discrimination. Much better to discriminate based on something that's widespread. To be fair, though, we do the discrimination based off of the widespread. Oh, she's 
she's a girl and he doesn't look like me. And all right. this, yeah, I agree. All, to- uh, all totally illegal. So it's, it could be a slippery slope. Got to come legal, right? Legal, not illegal. So I want to, I want to turn this around now. Where, what industries are you most interested in outside of your own? And what do you look to on a daily or weekly basis to stay informed? Oh, I'm terrible at being informed outside of my industry. Uh, in fact, I mean, I would be terrible in, within my industry, except there's just so many people that are motivated to keep me informed. Uh, my students, postdocs, uh, business associates, they, they fill my uh, mailbox with things that are extremely valuable to me. I'm very grateful to them. So the only reason I'm informed about other things is to the extent that I have broad interests and, and many things impact my little world. But no, it's, it's all by uh, uh, Google searches and um, uh, word, word of mouth, email, um, that sort of thing. And your bazillion companies. How do you decide when to take a company to market when you have a technology that's worth building a business around? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, usually, so some of my colleagues will do it when they're you know, tired of writing grants or some other bad reason like that. I usually wait until it's fairly painfully obvious that there is a market. In other words, where I'm getting a lot of requests for something, for example, and it would be a distraction for my academic lab to satisfy those requests, you know, like a lot of requests for, you know, hey, could you sequence my cousin or could you, you know, synthesize my plasma for me? Um, so that's, those are kind of uh, spontaneous market uh evaluations that, that, that bubble up. Uh, the, other, the other reason is that sometimes, uh, you know, increasingly, uh, my postdoctoral fellows have decided that this is a, a good career path. It's not the academic path or the joining a big company path. It's the path of uh, starting your own. And, and I, I think they've been very creative and successful so far. It'll be, it'll be hard to tell, you know, until a few years pass, but um, that's another motivation for, for starting a company. And usually that, that means that they and I have, have used the, the, the strategies that I mentioned earlier of, you know, seeing if the market actually needs it. Sometimes we have to create or anticipate a market, but most of that we try to de-risk in academia where creating and anticipating markets is low, lower risk than if you actually um, start a company. So we try to delay the company until it's we have a mature technology that has some momentum. In general, then, what's the time to market once you have something, be it a device, be it a treatment, be it a sequencing uh, strategy? What's the time to market look like for someone who's not familiar with biotech? Yeah, it depends on what you mean by market. I mean, so there's, there are ways that a company can make money, you know, by selling to pharma, but it's still not, it, is the market pharma or is the market the consumer that buys the pharmaceuticals that the pharma develops? So, so sometimes you could get to market, meaning pharma, in like a year, and you can cash in and you're done. You know, it's like, but then it still is going to take a decade to get through all the uh, FDA uh, phase one, two, and three clinical trials. So I think 10 years is kind of a good rule of thumb for, for uh, almost best case scenario for a, um, a new therapy or even a new diagnostic. An instrument rule of thumb is it takes about five years to go from a kind of a, a High quality academic publication to a turnkey system um, with, you know, with the instruction manuals and the reagents and everything. So it's in that range, five to 10 years. Occasionally, you'll get something. If the market is considered researchers, that can be almost instantaneous. So like CRISPR, we published in January of 2013. And by sort of March, May, there were thousands of labs that had access through uh, AdGene which is a nonprofit distributing plasmids. So there are some things that, that spread very, very quickly. What do you think about the whole IP battle over the CRISPR tech in terms of that and then the precedent it sets? I don't think it sets any precedent. I don't even think it's that interesting. I mean, it's a good question. It's just not, uh, you know, it's like, you know, with a cell phone, there are thousands of patents involved in that. You don't say, you know, what's the cell phone patent battle? You know, there's, there's patents and everything from like you know, how to, lay down gold and silicon and uh, how to, you know, compress images. And there's just thousands of things there. Uh, and I think the same thing is going to be true for gene therapies. CRISPR is just one of many 
uh, subtractive, you know, knockout therapies, and then there's lots of additive. In fact, most gene therapies are additive, which CRISPR isn't particularly good at. Um, and there are alternatives to CRISPR that predate it and that postdate it. And I think, you know, I, I think it's a it's, it's something that that uh, doesn't it really doesn't matter. Uh, and also, all the companies are going to cross license anyway. So you know, there are three perfectly viable uh, CRISPR companies on a few blocks of each other in Cambridge. That uh, you know, are just going forward, you know, each with each with their own set of founders, and I'm involved in two of them, and it's just uh, doesn't matter. So, so it's a fake controversy that the media created because the headline looks good that someone stole genetic engineering. I think it's I think it's true. I think the media correctly realizes that the average citizen can't relate to the nuances of you know exactly how we engineer the PAM site of CRISPR or how we avoid off targets or the software that's required. Uh, but they can understand the human drama, you know, uh, he said, she said drama. And it's the same with the genome project. It's, a, it's the, you know, corporation versus, uh, you know, the Kumbaya international collaboration. Um, those are, those have a human um, interest story uh, that's more, that's more palatable. And it ha- accomplishes the goal of getting a lot of people talking about science. Admittedly, they're really talking about people. Um, but it's that sort of thing that the younger generation will get. Even, even the older is just saying, wow, drama. Young, young whippersnappers these days. Hey, why is there this drama? And they'll, they'll read about it. It's the way I was inspired by uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida. What else inspired you? Was there certain scientists, sci-fi, et cetera, that really drove you down this? Uh yeah, so I didn't have any scientists or science or engineering in my life until I was about 13. Um, for some reason, it wasn't taught in the schools that I was in uh, that I can remember. Uh, and I was a rather poor reader as well as dyslexic. And so I mostly learned from picture books or pictures in books. But I was inspired by biographies. You know, my mom would read or, uh, biographies uh, to me or tell me about them. And, uh, you know, so... Madame Curie and, uh, and Einstein and the usual Luther Burbank was one of my favorites. I would, I would go out and graph things, graph trees, the branches together in the yard. That was, that was very inspiring to me. What would you could yeah. say if you could leave a message with kids? Kids? Today yeah. kids? Today's kids? Uh, you know, I think synthetic biology is a great field. Uh, you know, it's like plastics in the graduate movie. Yeah, I would, I would, you know, I would say take care of your environment, be inspired by nature, but not limited by it. Get some of us off the planet safely. This would probably be some of my mess. You know, be nice to uh, to uh, your colleagues, your friends. And- I like I like that quote, be inspired by nature, but not constrained by it. I don't know if you've coined that, but that would be a good one right there. Well, let's coin it then. <laughs> yeah, let's coin it. So. Let's go for a hard question. You're 65. If we're going to be brutally honest and hard, what's your over-under line in terms of what you think and what you expect the technology will help you achieve? Uh, well, like, you know, the, the first thing is I expect to have a lot more years to achieve it. So it's not 65 is not what it used to be, uh, at least from my view. Oh, no, that's the, that's the absolute that's the absolute point. I'm not saying 65 is old. Yeah, no, no. Uh, and, and I'm not. So, so I don't think there's necessarily a limited time frame. I also am not sure that, you know, a lot of things that we're worrying about, including climate change, are necessarily that hard from a technological standpoint. I mean, and, and even their political, you know, a lot of things that seem hard politically, if you come up with the right technology, the sudden, you know, suddenly it changes. So, for example, the, what seemed like imminent starvation from Malthus all the way forward was solved by things like the... the Carl Bosch's uh, nitrogen fixation in the fertilizer and, you know, uh, new generations of wheat and, and, and corn and rice, which allowed us to at least double our population over the, the Malthusian expectations. So what can be done? What can a, 60, a 65-year-old who's just barely finally getting up to speed do? Uh, you know, I think we see a lot can be done in, in five or 10 years. I mean, it's, so the revolutions in reading, writing, and editing each of which uh, were less than a decade. Most of the progress, 10 million fold reduction in, in uh, cost and, and improvement in quality for reading and writing, and about 10,000 fold a more modest improvement in editing. 
and I think these can continue to improve and impact all uh, fields even beyond biology. I think we're going to everything that's currently manufactured without biology. Uh, we're going to be thinking long and hard about whether it could be made better, smarter. You know, materials that are currently dumb materials like steel could every square centimeter could be as smart as uh, a cockroach or smaller, smarter. Uh, How do you design something like that? Uh, smart materials. Well, I mean, again, it's natural nature inspired. So our skin is incredibly good at keeping bacteria out and self healing. Um, and so you basically ask, can we make uh, things out of skin? Can we photos, photosynthetic objects are even easier because they're, you know, they're lower maintenance than say mammalian skin. You know, uh, you can, we, we can turn photons into information. Uh, we do that, you know, even little insects will do that. We can turn that information into DNA. Our lab has, has shown that. So in principle, insect eyes could be ubiquitous. They could be incorporated into a whole variety of biologically manufactured materials. And then you've got a lot of intelligence uh, there that's really just grafting an insect eye into um, or plant uh, photoreceptors into, uh, into a, a, a material that would be like wallpaper upholstery. Any prospect for photosynthesis for humans? I hear that if you eat enough plants, you can get a very, very minuscule calorie boost. There are uh, almost every major phylum of animals has an example of a species that has chloroplasts in its uh, or something equivalent photosynthesis in its surface. They're usually pretty modest uh, benefits. And you can calculate how much of it, even with the most efficient photosynthesizer, which are certain cyanobacteria, which have doubling time of two and a half hours you'd still need so many square meters of, of extra skin that you'd look more like a dragon than like a human. Or maybe you'd look like an umbrella or something. But I, I, I don't, it doesn't strike me as a, as a high priority just yet. You know. So your undergrads come to you. They've solved human editing. They've created the ability to do X. What superpower does George Church want and why? Well, most of the superpowers we already have relative to our ancestors, uh, you know, like you know, I can see everything from gamma rays to radio waves, the entire electromagnetic spectrum, not just 400 to 700 nanometers. I can, I can fly. I can, you know, go around the world in a short period of time. The only things that are really left for biological superpowers is health and uh, intelligence, maybe wisdom. And most of those are still analyzingly out of reach. Uh, you know, I don't think they're... Met millennia away i think they're more like years away but those would be the i guess the superpowers that i would be looking the the, the, the few superpowers we don't already have uh, certainly the ones having to do with space exploration those would be considered just ordinary health for people in space uh they might be considered superpowers to uh to our ancestors what would it take for you to volunteer to go yeah, I mean, I, th I think that uh, I may not be the best candidate uh, unless even if we had serious aging reversal, I still you could argue that society has invested too much in me for me to be go bungee jumping or parachuting without a uh, you know, jumping out of a plane with, with a, a parachute. But if it became very routine and, and, uh, and, and low, very low risk, then I would probably uh, I would probably do it. I just yeah, I I. I, I this is not about me. I, tried, I was taught as a young person to serve everybody else first before you eat. And I think that I would like to make it feasible for a lot of people that are highly motivated to, to colonize other worlds to do so. I think you just brought up a really interesting point accidentally by saying that society has too much invested in you for you to go bungee jumping. Do you think about that? How do you think about risk in terms of your own day-to-day -day life with the type of work that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not, I'm not congenitally risk averse. I mean, I took any risk. I, you know, I got, you know, I destroyed a couple of bicycle helmets. I got a concussion. I, uh, you know, done vertical face rock climbing. Um, but, you know, I do feel like I, it's irresponsible for me to take arbitrary risks at this point. They, they should be more calculated, you know, like, for example, being guinea pig number one, in the personal genome project where I'm the one that tests the, the punch biopsy, that's not something that's going to kill me or, or make me a, you know, mental vegetable. It's just going to save uh, pain and suffering uh, uh, in the other patients in the study. 
So I think that's a reasonable risk. Putting my medical records and, and genome in the public domain, some people would consider risky. But again, that's not a life-threatening risk. But yeah, being the first person to land on Mars would, would probably be an unacceptable risk based on what we know right now. Although I have to say the safety record for space has been extraordinary. I mean, this, you know, the, the motto, failure is not an option, which does not apply to my field, certainly was a motto at NASA and, and probably still is. Yeah, all things considered, it's quite, a, it's quite an impressive feat to make rides go that far with such few hiccups. Yeah, yeah. So we've taken a lot of your time. I know you're a busy, busy guy. I have one last question for you, and that's if you wanted to leave listeners with something, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? Well, I think that we need to uh, uh, be nice to each other and uh, be thoughtful about the future, including thinking of what win-win solutions where it's not me versus them, but there's a way where we can float all the boats. Uh, and I think there are technological win-win solutions very often where there are not political uh, solutions, or you could consider technological as a way of, of finessing the political one. And this includes... Um, getting preventative health care, preventative being far more cost-effective than cures and more equitably distributed, including vaccines, getting your, your genome sequence, avoiding Mendelian diseases, I think carbon sequestration. Uh, these are these should be high priorities, and and they're not they don't necessarily involve belt tightening. On, on the contrary, they involve filling up the the bellies of people that are currently impoverished and and making them creating a virtuous cycle of, so they don't have to spend so much time on, on their health problems with their family. They can spend more time on educating their children, both boys and girls, and then those educated citizens can, can participate in the, the whole conversation worldwide. Yeah, just imagine if whatever you're spending each year was, I don't know, 50% less on healthcare, 75% less. That's a lot of discretionary time, money, and Let's face it, if you're feeling better, when you feel like crap or you feel good, uh, your world is a world of hurt different. Exactly. And it's George, acting not just to you, but to your whole village, your whole family. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like when you lose your mind, it hurts your family. When you lose your body, it kills you. It's, uh, it's really hard the way that people age and a lot, of the, a lot of the issues we have. Thanks for what you're doing. If people want to get involved, they want to learn more about you, they want to send you some money to make it happen or in some way, shape or form, Find out more about George Church. Where is the best place? Uh, Google search will lead you to my website, which is at Harvard. Personal Genome Project is international and, and certainly could use some help. But yeah, act, uh, act locally, think globally. Act locally, think globally, and do something. I like it. Thanks for coming today, George. Thank you. Yes. Keep disrupting. Yeah, we will keep disrupting. You, uh, you keep disrupting in a, God, a humble way. Jeez. Thanks for doing this. Take care. Yeah. Take care. If you want more of the disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.